good morning. If everyone could please be seated. Uh, my name is Bill Russell, and I'm the dean of the graduate school. One of the dean's privileges is to introduce the Madison Medalist on Alumni Day, which I am honored to do this morning. The Madison Medal was established 30 years ago by the Association of Princeton Graduate Alumni to be awarded by the university as the highest honor bestowed to an alumni of, to alumni of the graduate school. At the awards luncheon today, Peter Bell will receive a medal with the inscription, 2003, Peter D. Bell, Graduate 64, Woodrow Wilson School, humanitarian and leader in the struggle to give hope and voice to the most vulnerable in this nation and throughout the world. I'd like to take a few minutes to expand upon that citation. Mr. Bell, the oldest of six children, is a native of Gloucester, Massachusetts. His father and uncle ran a manufacturing company started by their, their immigrant father to make oil skins for fishermen. In 1957, after his junior year at Gloucester High School, Peter was awarded an American Field Service scholarship to join the first group of exchange students entering Japan after World War II. There he lived with a family that had lost relatives in the bombing of Nagasaki and was seeking reconciliation with America through its relationship with him. This experience sparked an interest in international affairs and produced a diary that was the basis for a book entitled Junket to Japan. As an undergraduate at Yale after he returned, Mr. Bell used royalties from that book for travel to West Africa in the summer of 1960. While constructing a village school in the Ivory Coast, he witnessed the building of a new nation as the independence movement in that former French colony reached its climax. Upon returning to Yale, he found, helped found a society to engage the campus in discussion on African affairs, and he gradually became interested in underdeveloped countries, regions in general. At commencement, he received the Hatch Prize, given to, and I quote, a senior who, motivated by spiritual and ethical considerations, proposes to further his studies of international problems and their peaceful solutions, end quote. His application to the MPA program at the Woodrow Wilson School at about that time stated, and I quote, my interest in our problems as a nation is not passive and detached, but active and immediate. I have the perhaps idealistic notion that I, in some way, want to participate in the solution to these problems, end quote. From faculty such as Nobel Prize winner Sir W. Arthur Lewis, he learned not only about economics in developing countries, but practical lessons as well. And when he graduated, his first job took him to Rio de Janeiro as a training association associate with the Ford Foundation. Peter stayed with the foundation for 12 years, making a lasting mark through its Latin American program. In 1969, for example, ignoring threats and harassment, he recommended a startup grant for a young Brazilian professor of sociology opposed by the military regime. That professor, Fernando Enrique Cardoso, went on to build a premier center for social research and became president of his country. In Chile, during the Pinochet regime in 1973, he helped transform 
the organization, that is the Ford Foundation effort there, from a development assistance program to a protector of human rights. His humanitarian efforts were depicted in the 1982 film Missing, starring Jack Lemmon as a father in search of his missing son. For those of you who pick up the video on your way home today, you should look for the character Peter Cook in that movie. Over the next decade, Mr. Bell helped keep democratic aspirations alive in grassroots organizations throughout Latin America through the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, the Brookings Institute, the Ford and Russell Sage Foundations, the Inter-American Foundation, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and the Carnegie Corporation. In 1995, he became president and chief executive officer of CARE after eight years on his board of directors. CARE is the world's largest private relief and development organization, perhaps first known for responding to the threat of famine in Europe after World War II with 100 million CARE packages. Today, CARE works in over 60 developing countries, uh, benefiting 25 million people per year. Building on a 54-year tradition of humanitarian service, CARE seeks a world of hope, tolerance, and social justice, where poverty has been overcome and people live in dignity and security. To work towards that, Peter is broadening the organization's focus from a purely emergency response agency to one that is also deeply engaged in fostering third world development and self-empowerment of people. Clearly, Peter Bell is a most distinguished alumnus of the Graduate School, who has led global philanthropic and humanitarian efforts for almost four decades. With courage and imagination, he has given direction to policy and practice, and has demonstrated compassion for individuals on a very human level. Uh, I'd like to close this introduction by acknowledging his family, uh, his wife Karen, who is uh, director of the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University, their daughter Emily, who is somewhere here, there, right, uh, who volunteered in Paraguay and Ecuador, worked for a nonprofit, Family Justice, in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and is currently following in her father's footsteps as a first-year MPA student in the Woodrow Wilson School. And their son, Jonathan, who was a Peace Corps volunteer in Belize, uh, but was not able to uh, join us here today. So please join me in welcoming the 2003 Madison Medalist, Peter D. Bell, MPA 64, Woodrow Wilson School. Thank you so much, Dean Russell. I'm so impressed by the extent and depth of your research, uh, and I very much appreciate that generous introduction. Uh, fellow graduates of Princeton, ladies and gentlemen, good morning. To be given the opportunity throughout my career to work for causes in which I truly believe and to see the difference that it has made in people's lives has been its own reward. To be honored by Princeton for that work and to be here in your company is a great bonus. Over the years, I have met thousands of people in extreme poverty. Each one 
has a story of endurance, determination, and remarkable resourcefulness. I think of a bright-eyed young girl whom I met in Afghanistan in June 2001. Her name is Katra. Despite Taliban prohibitions against the education of girls, she had the courage to attend a home school supported by care. Katra was determined to become a doctor. She wants to contribute to the future of her country. I also think of Harat Banda, a hardworking farmer I met in Sri Lanka. With CARE's help, he had increased the productivity of his small farm so that he could sell a portion of his harvest on the market. To complete his family's one-room one house, he had been acquiring bricks for six years. With pride and glee, Harad informed me that he would finish his house in just one more year. If Katra and Harat are able to nurture hope for their future, surely I can as well, and so can we all. Difficult though it may be to fully grasp, half of humanity is eking out a living on $2 or less a day. Of this population, 40%, or 1.2 billion human beings, try somehow to survive on $1 or less a day, about as much as we would pay for a cup of coffee. Because the poorest people have such scant resources, the choices that confront them in their daily lives are very basic. Whether to purchase food for the whole family or medicine for a sick child, whether to send a child to school or keep her at home to care for a parent with HIV AIDS. Just last week, I received an email from care staff in Iraq telling me about a teacher whose salary is barely enough to support his family and to pay and to make the payments on his second-hand pair of trousers. He is paying for the trousers on installment. People in extreme poverty live in a world severely circumscribed. They reside in the flimsiest houses on the most precarious sites. They are hit hardest by natural disasters and they are the most exposed to infectious diseases like HIV, AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis. They are balanced every day on a razor's edge of crisis. In the U.S., we face our own kind of crisis. We are uncertain about the security of our American homeland. We're engaged in a war against terrorism around the world, and we are transfixed by the prospect of war in Iraq. In these circumstances, I know that a challenge to work collectively as global citizens to end poverty may encounter great skepticism. Nevertheless, I am convinced that the, wor that the world already has the knowledge, technology, and wealth to end poverty. If we had the collective will, we could find the way. There is nothing more important that we could do to make the world better for everyone.
Today I want to talk with you about why it is important to end extreme poverty, how it can be done, and where, in fact, the end of poverty begins. Why is it so important for us to fight global poverty? There are three arguments to consider. The first is that reductions in poverty will benefit not only the less developed countries, but also the industrialized countries. For example, the economic and social development of poor countries will reduce global population growth, restrain illegal immigration, and control the spread of infectious diseases. Advances in transportation, communication, and globalization are rapidly shrinking the world. And in a world that is becoming ever smaller, it is in the interest of the United States to spread the benefits of prosperity. The second argument for combating global poverty has surfaced in the aftermath of September 11. It suggests that terrorism somehow grows out of extreme poverty. Nothing in CARE's experience, working with thousands of the world's poorest communities, indicates that poor people are predisposed to become terrorists. The people behind the hijackings and killings of September 11 were neither poor nor uneducated. The most that can be said is that fanaticism often preys on a sense of social injustice, hopelessness, and desperation. Poverty is not itself the cause of terrorism. Yet, to the extent that people around the world enjoy greater social justice and inclusion, America as a nation will be more secure. The third argument and the most compelling reason for combating, for combating global poverty is a moral one. It is based on the dignity inherent in each human being and on the oneness of all humanity. Poverty is, first and foremost, an assault upon the dignity of a person, and each of us bears a responsibility to affirm and protect the dignity of others. That so many, so many people are so poor in such a prosperous world is, a, is an assault on the dignity of us all. As I travel the world, I am struck by the closeness I feel to the people whom I meet. That closeness can be heartbreaking. It was for me last September when I visited villages in Malawi in the middle of a massive drought and talked with mothers who were cradling their malnourished infants. And in November, when I visited southern Sudan, people talked with me about the men who had been killed by the Civil War, the women and children raped and kidnapped, and the livestock stolen. They had lost their loved ones, their livelihoods, and their very culture. But that is only part of the story. Almost, almost always, when I visit places of distress, I'm also inspired and even energized. I see examples of incredible determination to keep body and soul together and to persevere under the most adverse circumstances. During that same trip to Malawi, I saw men who were taking proactive steps to prevent a food crisis. With help from CARE, they had learned how to tap into underground springs, build small dams, and irrigate the land. Women were cultivating the land and turning 
uh, it into gardens of lush vegetables. Together they were turning a brown parched landscape into a green oasis. And in southern Sudan, the men and women who had lost their loved ones and their livelihoods to the war were starting all over again. They were training their few remaining oxen to pull a plow. And in the process, traditional pastoralists were turning themselves into effective farmers. If I were in their place, I wonder whether I could muster the same courage and resilience. During my years of public service, I've been privileged to feel intensely close to people in distant places and to know that we share the same conviction about the power of human interconnection. I remember a woman I met in a remote village of Honduras right after Hurricane Mitch. The local matriarch, wrapped in a shawl, she threw her arms around me and said, only care and God visit here. People in her village appreciated our material assistance, but they also valued our companionship, our solidarity. Why is it important for us to fight global poverty? At the end of the day, it is because of the sense of interconnection combined with our sense of the dignity inherent in every human being. Or as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. put it, in a real sense, all life is interrelated. The agony of the poor impoverishes the rich. The betterment of the poor enriches the rich. We are inevitably our brother's keeper because we are our brother's brother. Drawing strength from our human interconnection, how do we end global poverty and build a better world for all? I will focus my response on Africa simply because it is so often regarded as the hardest development case. If you follow the news through television, you can hardly be blamed if you see Africa in a state of mayhem. And in fact, 20 countries in sub-Saharan Africa are poorer now than they were in 1990. What is disappointing is that our media rarely put these problems into context or explain how underlying causes interact. How, for example, drought, HIV AIDS, and poverty have reinforced one another to produce the food crisis in Southern Africa. That region's version of what my UNICEF colleague Carol Bellamy calls the perfect storm. The list of causes is long and their interactions complex. Yet understanding these underlying causes and how they interrelate is crucial to fighting global poverty. Let me touch on some of the most pervasive challenges facing Africans today. First, the HIV AIDS pandemic. Of the 42 million people in the world with HIV AIDS, nearly 30 million live in sub-Saharan Africa. HIV AIDS is not only a health problem, it wreaks havoc on national productivity. It ostracizes people infected and excludes them from critical social networks. It robs entire communities of the most productive members of society, including teachers, health workers, and farmers. On a visit to Lesotho in Southern Africa, 
I met a national soccer star who is working for CARE, training teenagers to educate their peers on how to prevent the spread of AIDS. What had motivated him was the realization that the soccer leagues throughout Lesotho had been disbanded. Why? Because so many teenagers were attending one, two, three or more funerals on Saturdays that the coaches could no longer field complete teams. The HIV AIDS pandemic is the most devastating humanitarian crisis of our time and perhaps of all time. Stopping it is a precondition for development in Africa. A second underlying cause of poverty is lack of access to basic education. 120 million children in the world, a majority of them girls, never enter a classroom or learn to read or write. Yet research has shown that no social investment brings greater returns than basic education, especially for girls. Each year of schooling for girls is associated with increases in family income, decreases in fertility rates, and decreases in infant, child, and maternal death rates, not to mention increases in self-confidence and knowledge. A third underlying cause, lack of access to clean water. More than a billion people in the world, 495 million of them in sub-Sahara Africa, do not have access to clean water. In the poorest communities, diarrhea is the biggest killer of children. Clean water, when accompanied by sanitation and hygiene, reduces disease and saves lives. There are other root causes of poverty. At the top of my list are poor governance, discrimination, civil conflict, and harmful trade policies that block entry of goods from developing countries to markets in industrialized countries. Development organizations like CARE are committed to doing more than treating the symptoms of poverty. We seek not only to identify root causes, but also to learn how they reinforce one another and to devise ways to attack them individually and collectively. We recognize the need to focus not only on top-down, but on bottom-up approaches, not only on growth, but on equity, and not only on physical infrastructure, but on human resources, civil society, and governance. Drawing on our global experience, we support local aspirations and capacities so that poor communities can create their own lasting solutions. The beginning of wisdom is understanding that the exact combination of causes and solutions must be specific to each setting. Now this is an ambitious agenda, but we have overall learned a lot about how to be effective in reducing poverty. That learning has translated into real progress each time I visit an African village where CARE is working and see the resourcefulness, ingenuity, and determination of the people, I see how development assistance can be effective. People are getting at the root causes of poverty. Development assistance can support the basic values and motivations of poor people and make their fight to build better lives more effective.
In Tanzania, women are gaining access to opportunities and choices that they did not have before. Last year, I visited a care project called Hushakwama, which is Swahili, which in Swahili means you are not stuck. The name conveys to women that they have the power to improve their own lives. The project focuses not only on improving women's access to water, but on sanitation, but also to sanitation, health care, education, and income-generating activities. All told, the project has trained more than 1,200 women so far in entrepreneurial skills. And in Burundi, CARE is helping Hutus and Tutsis, ethnic groups with a long history of conflict, labor side by side to rebuild houses destroyed by war. When I visited Burundi last year, I met an elderly man named Andre. Eight of his children had been killed in the ethnic conflict. Five children, including an orphan he was caring for, were living in the remnant of his tiny home. Andre proudly showed me the foundation that had just been laid for his future home. I am too old, he said, so the younger, stronger people are helping me. Working together, members of the community, Hutu and Tutsi, completed Andre's house in just two weeks. Development assistance can be effective. With local leadership and commitment and outside support, advances are occurring in communities all across Africa. Each case is important in itself. It also contributes to a larger transformation. Though change may be slow and grudging, we need to remind ourselves that the results are worth the effort. Despite the enormous toll that poverty continues to take all around the world, we have seen progress on vital fronts. National leadership and grassroots support in Uganda have cut the prevalence rate for HIV AIDS in half since the early 1990s. Dramatic increases have been achieved in agricultural pr productivity. India, for example, is now self-sufficient in production of grains. Between 1980 and 1990, immunization rates increased from 5 to 80 percent and helped save the lives of 4 million children each year. 800 million more people have obtained access to safe water since 1990. And the literacy rates among adults have been cut almost in half over the last three decades. You see, it can be done. For many millions of people, the world has gotten better. Still, there's much more work ahead of us, and we must continue until we overcome extreme poverty. If ever there were a challenge that cries out for American leadership, it is the fight against global poverty. In visiting Senator Bill Frist's website, I noticed a quote from Elton John, with whom the Senator has made common cause in the fight against AIDS. To look after our own at home is a sign of strength. To reach out to others around the world is a sign of greatness. Just imagine the impact of an America that put ending poverty 
at the top of its strategic agenda. Imagine the impact of a U.S. president who pursued the fight against global poverty with the same vigor that President Bush has led the campaign against the regime in Iraq. When it comes to reducing global poverty, the United States could make a powerful contribution on many fronts. Let me cite just two of those fronts and then discuss a third. First, let's look to trade. Opening the markets of the largest economy of the world could give a critical boost to the export growth and economic development of poor countries. In the year 2000, Congress virtually eliminated tariffs on, it, on textiles coming into the United States from some African countries. This has been a positive advance. On the other hand, President Bush also signed a farm bill last year that, that will award subsidies of tens of billions of dollars over the next decade to American farmers. The new law makes American sugar and cotton cheaper than African sugar and cotton and effectively keeps them out of our market. A political strategy to phase out U.S. agricultural subsidies would provide big opportunities for African economies. <laughs> uh, second, let's look to diplomacy. Violent conflicts are underway in some 35 countries around the world. Most of these conflicts are internal. Almost all are in developing countries. And in every case, the conflicts take their heaviest toll on poor people. Where the United States is prepared to give sustained diplomatic attention, it can often contribute, contribute to resolving these conflicts. For example, the Bush administration has quietly but effectively supported talks aimed at ending the civil war in Sudan. A war that has gotten little coverage in the U.S. media, but that has killed two million Sudanese and displaced four million. If successful, the peace process could make a huge difference in Africa's largest country. Diplomacy is an underappreciated resource in fighting poverty. A third front in fighting poverty is U.S. development assistance. That assistance is vital in helping poorest, the poorest countries to build the capacity to be more self-reliant and to engage in the, the world economy. Roughly 80% of Americans strongly support cooperation with the poorest countries. Americans view hunger as a world problem of the first order and think, US, uh, and think that the U.S. should do more overseas to address poverty. Americans typically believe that 20% of all government spending goes to foreign aid, 20%. They are astonished, therefore, to learn that the actual amount of U.S. spending on foreign aid is less than 1%. Americans express concern that the U.S. is carrying more than its fair share of the burden of assistance. But even though we contribute the most in absolute numbers of dollars, the U.S. is actually dead last among the 22 industrialized democracies in percentage of GMP spent on international de development. 
There is so much more that we could do. In his first two years in office, President Bush's international agenda was dominated by the harder issues of military security and economic policy. He struck a different note last March at a UN conference on development. He reaffirmed the commitment of the United States to bring hope and opportunity to the world's poorest people. We fight against poverty, he said, because faith requires it and conscience demands it. And we fight against poverty with a growing conviction that major progress is within our reach. Specifically, President Bush proposed the creation of a new Millennium Challenge account. By the year 2006, $5 billion will have been added to the core U.S. budget for development assistance, a 50% increase. All $5 billion will be channeled to developing countries that meet certain threshold criteria in terms of economic freedom, political liberty, and the rule of law. I have some concerns about this initiative, including a worry that it could be subverted by narrow geopolitical objectives, especially in a time of war. But we do not want to lose sight of the bigger picture. The Millennium Challenge account, if enacted by Congress, would mark the most significant expansion of development assistance since the 1960s. In his State of the Union message, President Bush came forward with another bold initiative. To join the global battle against AIDS, especially in Africa, he proposed a $15 billion program, $10 billion in new money over the next five years. I am heartened by the President's proposal for two reasons. First, because it marks the true beginning of a U.S. response to the AIDS pandemic that is in keeping with the scale of the problem. And second, because it has received support from such a broad, broad-based, politically diverse constituency. And we can all take pride in the role that Senator Frist has played in building that constituency and in making the case to the President. In 1970, the U.S. and other leading industrialized democracies agreed on a common goal of allocating 0.7% of their gross national product to international development. If, if approved by Congress, these two presidential initiatives, the Millennium Challenge Account and the Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, would be important steps in the right direction. It will still be a very long stretch to meet the 0.7% of GNP. But increasing the U.S. Contribu contribution by even one-tenth of 1% 1 of GNP would be a great start. To get all the way there will take truly visionary leadership by a succession of presidents. It will also take a tremendous surge of activist support from the American people. How much of the, of the global fight against poverty can the U.S. take on? I cannot wait for the debate to get underway. It is impressive that countries like Denmark, the Netherlands, Norway, and Sweden have met their goal of 0.7% of GNP. 
I recognize that the U.S. has other responsibilities in the world. But I also believe strongly that we must achieve a better balance between defending ourselves from our enemies and providing hope and opportunity to others. Our contribution to the fight against global poverty would be a true measure of our country's greatness. So, where does the end of poverty begin? It begins with an idea, an act of imagination, and the embracing of a vision. At a global level, the end of poverty begins with the idea that a world without poverty is both morally necessary and actually achievable. At the level of families and poor communities, the end of poverty may simply begin with the conviction that their lives, or the lives of their children, can be made better. The end of poverty must begin with the governments of developing countries. They have a special responsibility. Effective governments create policy environments that respect human rights, encourage meaningful political participation, promote development, and foster civic pride and entrepreneurial spirit. These governments give priority to education, health, and other services which are essential investments in people living in extreme poverty. It begins with leadership. I'm impressed by the recent display of leadership by the newly elected president of Kenya. One of President Kibaki's first acts in office was to abolish fees for public schools, and parents literally flooded the schools with their children. Of course, good intentions can only go so far. To actually reduce extreme poverty, it is also important to set goals lay out strategies, mobilize resources, assign accountability, and measure progress. The end of poverty also begins with poor communities, local leaders, and grassroots organizations. They must be the owners and organizers of their own development. People in communities that work together can overcome conflict, share the costs of bringing clean water to everyone, rebuild schools torn down by war, raise children orphaned by HIV-AIDS, and press government authorities to be accountable. The end of poverty begins with Katra in Afghanistan and Herat in Sri Lanka. The end of poverty also begins with each of us. Given the interconnectedness of the world and the oneness of all humanity, we can and must play a role. There is a very real sense in which, in which each of us, in this hall and all around the world, must be part of where the end of poverty begins. The moral arguments to end poverty have long been there. But today, for the first time, we have the knowledge, technology, and wealth to get the job done. We could actually put an end to poverty, to extreme poverty in a matter of decades. Our enlistment in this cause starts from the realization that we are citizens, not only of our own country, but also of the world.
We have an obligation to be knowledgeable about the world and about the engagement of the United States within it. We should develop views on trade policies, agricultural subsidies, and whether it makes sense for the United States to have a defense budget equal to that of the next 22 largest defense budgets in the world combined. We should also educate ourselves on the humanitarian consequences of war. The end of poverty begins with the leaders in this audience. Seeing how the institutions in our lives, where we work, where we study, where we worship, can help in the fight against global poverty. It begins with each of us casting a ballot for political leaders with a broad view of the world. It begins with each of us sending a fax or making a phone call to our representatives in Congress in support of President Bush's Millennium Challenge account. It begins with standing up in our corporations and urging that social responsibility applies not only in our home community, but in the world community. It begins with volunteering at a nonprofit organization to help poor people in our home community. Or it may begin by making a donation or serving on a board to an international relief and development organization. Be forewarned, however, that is how I began at CARE. And look at me now. Once you get into this kind of work, it is hard to know where to stop. It may be tempting to conclude that the task of ending poverty is too overwhelming and too long-term. In the end, it must be done one individual, one family, one community, one country, one region at a time. But we have learned a lot about how to scale up our efforts, partner with others, and increase our, our collective impact. Last year, CARE made a, a direct difference in the lives of 31 million people. Compared with the 1.2 billion people in extreme poverty, 31 million may seem like drops in a vast ocean. But each one of those drops is a human being who seeks dignity and security, the same dignity and security that we seek and find every day in this country. Harat, the farmer I met in Sri Lanka, believed that with persistence and resourcefulness, he would acquire enough bricks to build a home safe and secure enough for his family. So I believe that we, in partnership with many thousands of others, can muster the will and resources to build a, a better world for our global family. It begins with our taking the first step, acquiring the first brick, and the next until a stable foundation is laid. With ingenuity and commitment, we can and we will build a world where extreme poverty has been overcome, where everyone sleeps in safety and awakens with hope. Where does the end of poverty begin? It begins with each of us. It begins 
here. It begins now. Thank you. Thank you so much. I believe that we have uh, a little bit of time uh, for uh, discussion or questions that you may have, and I'd be uh, happy to uh, respond to any. Yes, uh, I, if you, there, there are a couple of microphones that are circulating, but if you speak out, I think people will, will be able to hear you. Certainly that population explosion has to be one of the root causes of poverty. And yet the United States is in the forefront of the fight against sexual education and population control. Why is that, and how can that be addressed? Well, the, the explosion hasn't been quite as rapid as you cited. That is, uh, there are more than six billion people in the world, but we're still uh, well short of uh, 10 billion. Uh, what you point to, though, I think is a, is a very serious problem, and it's, it's the kind of issue, precisely the kind of issue that I would hope that uh, all of you would take an interest in. And that is that, uh, you know, CARE and, and many other agencies in developing countries and internationally are engaged in efforts to, to try to improve the well-being of families around the world. And certainly the whole area of reproductive health and family planning is important to that. Uh, but what happens is that we have a highly sort of symbolic, uh, emotional, uh, political debate going on in this country over uh, the abortion issue. And we tend to saddle our uh, international development assistance uh, legislation with that internal debate when in fact it has very little relevance to the problems that poor families in developing countries have. I, I'm not sure that I've ever actually heard of a case where demands were put on care uh, for uh, abortion services. Uh, it's almost not relevant except for the fact that very often um, women are trying to avoid uh, putting themselves in the position uh, where, the, where they may be forced to have an abortion or their health would be at risk. Um, so, you know, this is, a, this is one of those debates that goes on year after year. And those uh, who take part in it in this country are concerned overwhelmingly with their domestic constituencies and pay little heed, unfortunately, uh, to, uh, to, to uh, poor families in developing countries. It's always closely contended, however, and it swings back and forth. 
And in the end, it depends on, uh, very often, a small but critical group of uh, people who uh, may regard themselves within the U.S. context pro-life, but who are able to see the importance of family planning, unimpeded family planning in developing countries. Uh, yes. Okay. Could you speak a, a little bit about uh, the urban poor? M most of your anecdotes, I think, were more about the rural uh, yes. poor. Uh, in most of the areas uh, where still many, most of the countries in where, which care works, in those parts of the world to which we give highest priority, namely Sub-Saharan Africa and South, uh, South Asia, uh, poverty is still predominantly a rural phenomenon. But around the world, it is increasingly uh, moving into cities as well. Uh, still, most of CARE's work is where the poor people are, and that is predominantly in the, in the rural areas. We are engaged in urban uh, areas uh, in uh, helping to uh, build uh, water systems. Uh, we, for example, uh, even today in uh, Iraq, are providing clean water to four million people. Uh, we, throughout the period of the Taliban and the post-Taliban period, uh, provided uh, the principal source of uh, safe water in Kabul. Uh, we're also engaged in uh, microcredit programs, efforts to, uh, uh, to support uh, particularly women engaging in small enterprises in urban areas. And, uh, and in other uh, services, for example, focused on particularly uh, migrant populations, and uh, including uh, what, what is called sex workers. Uh, to prevent the spread of uh, uh, HIV-AIDS and uh, sexually transmitted diseases. Um, these are at least some of, of the areas in, in which we're engaged. Yes. The alleviation of physical poverty. Yes. Uh, would you care to uh, expatiate a little bit on other agencies, because I know CARE doesn't do this, uh, who are concerned with intellectual poverty and spiritual poverty? You noted uh, that uh, the terrorists do not always come from the poor. They right. often come from the disaffected urban rich. Uh, there seems to me there's a, 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 as, as great a need upscale uh, or upriver or upstream, whichever it is, for intellectual poverty remediation as there is for physical poverty? Uh, if I understand your, your question uh, correctly, I, first, CARE is not working at the sort of the higher levels within, the, uh, uh, within education, for example. We, we may draw from universities, but we're not working uh, with universities. I, uh, for me, if I had a number one uh, priority in development work, it would be uh, in basic education. Um, the returns to basic education are just incredibly high. 
And if you think back, for example, to uh, look at uh, Pakistan or look at uh, particularly the, the education of uh, Afghans and Pakistanis and others in these kind of these uh, radical fundamentalist uh, Islamic schools. Uh, many of these uh, were, uh, were in fact, in the case of the Afghans, were refugees who came over uh, from Afghanistan. They should have had better alternatives. Uh, they should have uh, been able to get uh, what we would think of as a good uh, basic education. It would be the sort of fundamental to then go to the next steps. So I, I wouldn't belittle the importance of, uh, of a basic education. And I think even a sense of inclusiveness, of being part of the world, of, uh, of, uh, of having a sense that you have opportunity, that you have a future, that, you, that uh, you're not being done a great injustice, is the beginning of sort of creating uh, this kind of uh, better world in a, in a spiritual and intellectual sense that you're talking about. Now, obviously, the work of an organization like CARE or our peer organizations is not sort of all-inclusive. There need to be many approaches at many different levels, including uh, at the university level. It just doesn't happen to be what we, we are doing. Sorry, yes. Uh, someone? Uh... Yes, thank you. Do you think private agencies and organizations such as CARE are more effective instruments than governments in seeing that the monies and the <clears throat> funds get to the right source? There seems to be an impression that possibly there's more waste when the government is giving it to another country versus when a private organization sees that the money gets put to use for the people. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I couldn't see where, where your voice was, com was coming from. <laughs> oh, okay, oh, sorry, you're... Uh, okay. Um, clearly, you know, one would... Uh, ideally, uh, when, uh, when development assistance is given through governments, it would be given through good governments. That is, governments that... Uh, uh, that uh, exercise the rule of law, that respect human rights, that uh, foster uh, participation, uh, and that are honest. And there are some governments that sort of fit that billing. <laughs> and uh, when you have such governments, it's good to invest through them. I think, though, that we have come increasingly to appreciate the importance of civil society, uh, not, not only the private sector, but civil society, that group between government and the private sector that, uh, is, that holds government accountable um, and that does, in fact, uh, prov provides much of the, uh, support, the sort of mediation between government and communities. And certainly a, a comparative, comparative advantage that organizations like CARE have, that, that we have very, we have well-trained staff, we have systems of accountability, and we have uh, established reputation over many decades 
uh, for being able to account for the development assistance that is channeled through us. So we're uh, very happy to, to play that role. In many cases, what we are, what in say Afghanistan, we would be delighted. Uh, now today, we're we're working with 400 schools. We very much hope that we'll be able to get to the day when the government of Afghanistan will be supporting those schools and running a, a national school system with whatever system that they may have they set up. Or we'll be delighted when we're no longer uh, running the water system, not only of uh, Kabul, but now of uh, six or eight other cities and towns in Afghanistan. That should be a government responsibility. So it's a, it's a dynamic uh, process uh, in which I think organizations like CARE do have a role to play. Yes. Uh, you quoted Carol Bellamy earlier uh, with a metaphor about the perfect storm of circumstances that are worsening poverty. Shifting to the literal use of the phrase, can you estimate or has CARE seen any studies of the extent to which the uh, worsening poverty levels in the third world since 1990 do in fact correlate in any significant way to patterns of increasing floods, droughts, uh, heat-related infectious disease spread. In other words, is climate change noticeably part of the increase in poverty in the third world? I couldn't resist uh, citing her uh, perfect storm analogy coming as I do from Gloucester. Uh, <laughs> The, uh, uh, first, in fact, uh, in the, 19, ni the 1990s were actually the only decade of the 20th century in which the absolute numbers of poor people in the world declined rather than increased. And it was largely because of the progress, in fact, it can all be explained by the progress that was made in China and in India. Um, I can't, now by contrast, uh, I, there were, as I mentioned, uh, 20 African countries where, uh, where poverty got worse rather than better. And certainly the HIV AIDS uh, pandemic was a, an important part of the explanation for that happening. Um, and. You know, that, that's a major factor in Africa. Uh, well, I was in a debate uh, a couple of days ago with some of the faculty here about what the prospects are in India, and it's, uh, the returns are not in there. I desperately hope that the HIV-AIDS crisis can be contained in India and in China. I did not actually cite um, the ecological sort of deterioration as a uh, major cause of poverty. I think that it is a cause of poverty, but I would not be able to ascribe at this moment uh, that as a, ca the, a cause for worsening conditions in any particular country. Thank you very much.
I invite you to remain for Senator Frist's uh, talk, which will begin at 1030.